And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Tuesday, December 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Bobby and Ardaya talking Dodgers. And the NL West. Fabian, thank you for joining me today. Of course. Thanks for having me. There's a lot going on. So happy to talk about it. It seemed like if you had to crown a, a winner of the 2023 2024 offseason, the Dodgers have uh, done that so far. Yes, other things could happen. And I don't know if they could lose that crown because they've already made uh, such a combination of impactful moves. This team is much better than it was a year ago. And they weren't bad last year. And they're not really done at this point, which is hard to believe. But I wanted to start with the Tyler Glasnow trade because the last time it was brought up on this podcast, it was rumored to be something that was in the works. And it actually unfolded exactly the way it was initially reported, where it was a four-player deal. It's Tyler Glasnow going to the Dodgers with Manuel Marco, Ryan Pepio, Johnny DeLuca going back the other way. I thought that return was pretty light for the Rays and the Dodgers also extended glass now, which we'll talk about here in just a minute. But this seems like a massive, massive get for the Dodgers because they have a more established frontline arm now to head up this rotation after dealing with a lot of injuries. Of course, Walker Bueller's absence and Clayton Kershaw. All of this just seems like a team that's really going all in to distance itself from the field in a big way. Yeah, it's interesting that you sort of say that's a light return. I think as far as like the Dodgers have been concerned in years past, I feel like that's a pretty hefty return in terms of like what the Dodgers usually gave up in trade packages, especially the fact that they gave up Ryan Pepio. But yeah, you're right. Like the fact that like obviously the framework of the trade had kind of been in place for about a week and a half. It's just a matter of first off trying to see if Tyler Glass now would sign an extension, which he did. And then also just sorting out some money stuff, especially Manuel Marco. Uh, which they figured out a way to do. It'll be the Rays are sending two million this year, and they're going to send an extra two million if they don't pick up Margot's option for next year, just to cover the buyout there. So, hmm. yeah, I mean, it's certainly the Dodgers pushing their chips in. I think the way that Shohei Otani structured his contract kind of set the tone there. Like, all right, it's time to really, really set the foot on the gas, and they've done that. I mean, obviously giving up some interesting pieces. Pepio is a guy that they valued a lot. Five years of club control, and obviously. The fact that they're able to turn glass down to five years of club control with the extension is a big reason why they were willing to make that happen. I think a healthier Tyler Glass now in recent years would have brought back a, a package that would have been more to my personal liking. But part of that's my belief in Glass now. I just think the Dodgers got a fantastic pitcher who probably gets more of a bad rap than he deserves. Tommy John surgery, of course, knocked out a year for him. He's had a few other injuries as well, but he's had bigger workloads in his career when you look at the seasons where he was stuck between AAA and the big leagues. So I think when you look at his his Fangraphs page or his baseball reference page, you can have that question of how healthy can this guy really be? There are a few healthier seasons on the ledger when you go back. Now, 
the extension was a big part of this deal getting done. Clearly, the Dodgers believe that better days are ahead on the health front for Glass. Now, you don't make a commitment like that to anybody if you think the medicals point to uh, a lot of time on the injured list. So I'm, I'm curious if you were kind of projecting out Glass now, expectations for him just from a workload perspective, where do you think that number is for the Dodgers in 2024 and beyond on an annual basis? Yeah, and the way that Glassdown and the Dodgers kind of described it, like they feel like all his injuries kind of stemmed from the initial UCL injury, which obviously got uh, repaired when it came to the Tommy John surgery. And they had like a synthetic graft in there that they feel like makes it even stronger. Um, yeah, I think as far as his workload for next year, like I think it's going to be pretty fluid. I think it's going to be, I mean, this is a deal they make. Obviously, regular season matters, but I think it's a move that they made with October in mind. Obviously, there's a lot of guys who are going to be pitching partial seasons for the Dodgers next season. Walker Buehler probably included. Dustin May, if he's able to make it back, if they're able to bring back Clayton Kershaw. So like, there's a lot of guys who are going to be pitching partial seasons for them, so that makes things a little bit more complicated. But I think they have enough quantity of arms at this point. It's just about the quality, keeping raising that ceiling. I think Glass now is the type of guy who really does that. So I think they're not necessarily going to push him too much, but I mean, just the fact that last year was his career high in innings, that 120 innings pitch. Like, I feel like he's probably going to set a new career high this season if he stays healthy. Yeah, it's just a matter of sort of how they manage that workload going forward and sort of what what sort of shape they want him in uh, come October. Now, has anyone you've spoken to in the organization suggested a six-man rotation is in the works for 2024? It's something that we've seen the Angels do with Shohei Otani in the past. Otani will start pitching again in 2025. So. For some, it seems like it's inevitable a year from now, but given the depth they still have, is that something we could see this season? I don't know if it'd be like a strict six-man rotation title, but like but they've already experimented a lot when it comes to like getting guys extra rest. I think they've had guys throw on extra rest more often than any team in baseball since Andrew Friedman's taken over. So like that's that's something that they're gonna build in, uh, have the guys pop in for a star or two, but as far as like having a strict six-man rotation, uh, and just like what that does to your roster construction, I'm not sure the Dodgers are gonna do that. For longer than like two or three turns at a time so i, I think it's me more a lot more creative just guys riding the shuttle from okc up to the big leagues guys who make starts guys like sheehan uh gavin stone uh even some of the younger guys like landon act nick frasso guys that we'll probably see at some point this year yeah that's the thing about the dodgers that makes them so dangerous their ability to identify and develop big league players because when trades happen in the offseason we've seen it we see with the padres we see it with the rays Teams need years of control. They need inexpensive big league players because they run into financial constraints or they just place financial constraints on themselves in the case of Tampa Bay. And having all of that depth in your back pocket just gives the Dodgers an advantage every time a player like Glasnow becomes available. As far as the guys they gave up, Ryan Pepio was really interesting to me last year because he improved his control both at AAA and in the time he was in the big leagues, I know he was hurt, so it, was, it wasn't a full season's worth of innings. It was more like a third of a season's worth of innings between the two levels. But as you watched him compared to past seasons, were you buying into the adjustments that led to the significant improvements to Pepio's walk rate? Uh, to a certain extent, yes. I feel like a lot of the issues, especially in 2022, he sort of said uh, before the season he was trying to learn the sweeper, just sort of. Obviously, it's become a really trendy pitch, especially with the Dodgers organization. But he felt like trying to like learn that sort of tweaked his mechanics, made him lose his changeup. So, which is his signature pitch, his best pitch. 
So I feel like finding, trying to find and tweak that slider has always been his biggest thing. And I think like he, this year, the mechanics were definitely in the right spot. He was still trying to find the right field for his slider. I think by the end of the season, he did. And he was able, not necessarily a pitch that missed a lot of bats, but it was a lot of soft contact. It was kind of cutter-like movement on that slider. Do I think that he's going to have the type of like strand rate, stuff like that he had last year? No, uh, but he still looks like someone I feel like can at least be a quality starter. Whereas after 2022, I thought there was a chance that like if things didn't really pick up, he might wind up having to be a bullpen type arm. So I feel like the Rays at least they know what they're doing when it comes to pitching. So I feel like they'll be able to maintain some of the adjustments he's made and make him at least be a quality guy they can throw out there. Yeah, I know there's a lot of transactions that happen where teams like the Dodgers and Rays acquire a pitcher from someone else and you think, okay, they're clearly going to get better. They're going from an organization that doesn't manage pitching well to one that does that very well. When you see these teams trade with each other, it's fascinating because you still wonder, like, what other adjustments could there be? You know, what do the Rays see that they think they could possibly tweak that the Dodgers hadn't tweaked already? Or maybe did they just buy into the improvements that we were talking about? Uh, You're right about the strand rate. I think it was in the high 90% range. The BABIP was under 200 for Ryan Pepio. So there was some good luck in addition to the skills growth. The interesting thing, too, is the K rate came down quite a bit as the walk rate came down. I think if you had to choose like which combination of skills, if you can't do all of the best things that he does together, the 2023 version is more likely to succeed as a starter than the previous versions. Cause you're right. There was a lot of reliever risk in this profile before some of the adjustments that we just saw. Uh, Johnny DeLuca is an interesting player too. And we've seen the Rays kind of go shopping on the Dodgers depth chart before. I mean, we, Luke Rayleigh popped up and put up some pretty big numbers in 2023. DeLuca takes the roster spot of Manuel Margot as a, a right-handed hitting outfielder. Interesting power, speed, on-base skills. I mean, do you think this guy could actually pop and potentially emerge as, if not an everyday guy, a near-everyday guy? Because that's another thing the Rays have done very well in recent years, trading for players that weren't necessarily getting full opportunities elsewhere and turning them into more prominent players. It's funny enough, I feel like I see a lot of like Manuel Margot's game in Johnny DeLuca. Like, <laughs> I feel like the archetype fits a lot. Or like It's a really interesting bat, like a lot of bats to ball, and he really... Uh, turns on a lot of like turns pulls a lot of uh, stuff in the air, and I feel like that's why he sort of took the jump he did uh, throughout the minor leagues. I mean, this was a guy who was a 25th round pick. Uh, like, obviously, a lot of good physical tools there. He's fast. He's a good defender. But yeah, I feel like that adjustments with the bat make him really kind of interesting. Uh, I don't know how much his future is as a regular, or how much the Dodgers really saw him as someone who could fill like the right hand of platoon this year. But it seems like he's the guy who at least can fill into that. Uh, eventually, and he's a guy who sort of fits a lot of what Margot probably will bring to the Dodgers, just maybe less immediately as than Margot does. Defensively, what do you see from DeLuca? Is he a guy that can play all three outfield spots, or does he fit better in a corner? I mean, he, the speed is definitely there to play range in center field. I feel like that's the biggest thing. I, I think one of the last plays we, uh, last things we saw out of him uh, before he got injured and before he just wasn't up for the rest of the season was just a couple of really nice plays uh, in center and in right field uh, at Globe Life Field against the Rangers. Like he is a guy who at least the range isn't a concern. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing defensively. He's going to be able to cover a lot of ground. And as long as the Rays position him well, I feel like he'll grade up pretty well there. Yeah, I think it, the similarities to Margot are pretty interesting. And the key difference, of course, even with the Rays sending the Dodgers some money, Johnny DeLuca is on the league minimum. And that fits into what the Rays like to do 
really, really well. But an interesting player if he can pop. And, and that, that skill you mentioned, being able to pull the ball and in the air, that's what Isak Paredes did really, really well. The Rays saw that and turned him into an unexpected source of power. Maybe they see something similar in Johnny DeLuca. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Fabian, I think you've got a, a really interesting job because you get to cover Shohei Otani again, right? I mean, this is, I, I, don't, I don't know if there was any way that where he landed in free agency could have been more exciting than his arrival with the Angels a few years back. But somehow, I think the stars have aligned to make that happen. I'm curious, we, we've seen stories now of Shohei being a, a recruiter trying to help the Dodgers just get players to, to join him in Los Angeles and the supporting cast, they're already certainly on board with this as well. When you've covered Shohei in the past, like what is he like on a day-to-day basis? I know he's, he's a little bit of a mysterious feels like the wrong word in some ways, but he doesn't seem very accessible. So like when you've been able to see how he interacts with teammates and the people around the organization, you know, what have you seen covering him in the past? I mean, he's a private guy. I think that's for sure. I don't think anyone's going to doubt that, just especially could seeing how his free agency played out, everything like that, but like along with his agency, like how they sort of handle all that. But I feel like just speaking to teammates when he was with the Angels, like they, they loved him, especially some of the younger guys. They loved dealing with him. Like he was a, a goofy guy, a guy who was just sort of like one of them kind of fit in. Obviously, like he is an incredible competitor. I think he wants to win. I think that's pretty clear throughout this free agency. And Ever since then, sort of with how he structured his contract and some of the recruiting stuff, like you mentioned, it's clear he wants to win, but I feel like he's taken well. I, mean, I feel like his teammates really spoke highly of him, just sort of, especially early on in his tenure when he's trying to get used to playing in the United States, some of the adjustments, but they, they really speak really highly of him. I think, uh, obviously, like there's always going to be an adjustment to a new clubhouse, but I don't think that'll be an issue at all for Shohei. Yeah, from the outside looking in, it seems like it's a, a perfect fit. And I just, yeah, I was kind of asking more because I sometimes you see superstar players and especially guys that don't speak to the media much or at all. And you think, like, what are they really like with their teammates? Like, yeah, everybody wants to play with him because he's fantastic and there's no one else like him, but that he actually fits really well within the clubhouse, I think is huge as well because that is a, a big question for a lot of players when they join a new team. The unique nature of his contract, the thing that continues to crack me up is he's got this this deal where if Mark Walter or Andrew Freeman, if, if either one of those guys are gone, Shohei gets an opt out, which that's like a that's like a big tech sort of thing. <laughs> where did that come from? Like how how 
how unprecedented is that? Is there anyone else in baseball that has anything like that in their contract that you know of? As far as I know, from a player standpoint, no. Like this is the first time I've heard like of a player having this sort of key man clause. The only other time I could really find in baseball period was Joe Madden with the Rays. Ironically enough, had uh, Andrew Friedman as his key man. Andrew Friedman <laughs> leaves for the Dodgers. Uh, Joe Madden opts out of his deal with the Rays and becomes manager of the Cubs. But yeah, like this is extremely rare, and I think it's an instance of Otani as as the numbers were kind of flowing out there. Like there's a lot of okay, like, well. At a certain point, the salary is going to get to a point where no matter what your team's resources are, it's going to be really difficult to fill out the rest of the roster in terms of luxury tax penalties, stuff like that. So how else can he sort of maximize his value? And a lot of it's control. Like uh, he, this is explicitly like he has control at this point. Like he is tied directly to the power brokers of the Dodgers. I mean, as long as uh, Andrew Friedman's there, then Otani's there on the contract. Same thing with Mark Walter. So like, it's understanding sort of what led to the Dodgers to be in this position that he wanted to sign with them, that they were sort of thought of in this light and wanting to really keep that intact. I feel like, uh, I don't like, he never said this directly. He didn't say this in, in his sort of explanation of why he wanted the key man clause, but I do wonder how much that experience in Anaheim, some of the in- instability there, multiple GMs, multiple managers, uh, and Artie Moreno as an owner who could be, middling at times who can be stingy at other points uh, or can be star chasing at different points. I wonder how much that influenced him wanting to really have the stability uh, with the Dodgers, which, which isn't to say he didn't enjoy his time in Anaheim. Like obviously they had the chance to match the offer and they didn't. Uh, but mm-hmm. yeah, I wonder how much that influenced uh, some of the contract discussions. Yeah. I think the difficult thing with the angels on the one hand, you know, Artie Moreno runs payrolls that are, in the range of where they should be but the way they cut corners as an organization the places they don't spend basically player development the the lack of ability within the organization historically speaking to turn out as many quality big league players as let's just say the dodgers right that's a huge part of why the angels are the way they are it's a huge part of why they've been so aggressive drafting players and just vaulting into their minor league system trying to fill holes on the big league roster and there might be something to that like i'm all for this this idea that there could be faster paths to the big leagues than we once thought but drafting you know, nolan nolan shanuel as a mid first rounder and installing him as your first baseman a few weeks later that's probably going a level too far right like that's that's kind of weird but getting back to the dodgers for a bit what else is on their wish list? We know the interest in Yoshinobu Yamamoto is legit. And I think I saw a report from Ken Rosenthal earlier today. There are still seven teams actually in the mix for Yamamoto. So there has to be a plan B, a plan C even for the Dodgers if Yamamoto doesn't work out. The fact that they're even shopping in that tier after adding Glasnow and Otani gives us an idea of just how serious they are about pushing more and more chips in. But what are their other priorities beyond the rotation? And do you think there's even a, a bargain free agent pitcher out there? Because they've gone down that road in the past to try and address some of the, the occasional depth issues they run into due to injuries. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's the rotation. It's the rotation, rotation, rotation at this point. I think especially being able to address corner outfield a little bit there with Manuel Marco and the glass now trade. It's the, it's the rotation. Like I was talking to someone at the beginning of this offseason sort of like, 
envisioning things, trying to fi- like figure out like how the money would work. And I was like, all right, like, is it crazy to get Otani and Yamamoto? Just understanding that Yamamoto's value is going to be going way high, knowing what Otani was going to be able to sort of command in terms of salaries. And the fact that he wasn't going to help address the pitching staff, at least for next year. Uh, is this crazy? And they, they, they didn't say no, which is still crazy <laughs> to think about at the time. I shook my head at the time, but it's feasible now, which would be like a billion dollar offseason for the Dodgers. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, Yamamoto is very high on their priority list. They need to add pitching at this point still. And I think what they were able to give up in the glass now trade, they can still access some more of the farm system to trade for pitching if they need to. Um, but obviously, Yamamoto is probably their top priority in terms of free agents go. If they don't sign him, like there's still options that uh, they've been interested in the past. Like they tried trading for Jordan Montgomery at the de- deadline last year. He's someone who makes a lot of sense, just helping him get through the season. And we've seen what he can do in October. Um, and yeah, I mean, Clinton Kershaw is obviously still out there. And when you sort of mentioned some of the buy low candidates, I'm like Lucas Giolito makes a lot of sense. He's a local guy. Dodgers have been interested in him. Obviously, he's maybe maybe his days of his best days are behind him a little bit. At least they're a couple of years removed from that. Uh, but the Dodgers have shown that they're capable of sort of giving a guy a game plan. And Giolito's shown that he's going to be a smart, cerebral, gra- uh, cerebral guy and sort of following that. So maybe there's more to touch into there. But yeah, like, pitching is absolutely 100% the Dodgers' priority right now. Yeah, so you could look at that depth right now. And while many teams might envy what the Dodgers already have, <laughs> there's two or three guys that might be on the depth chart right now as starters that are going to be more up and down or, or possible you know, bullpen candidates just to balance out the staff what about shortstop gavin lux coming off the torn acl i I see a lot of trade rumors going around i'm a milwaukee guy so i see a lot of the willie adamas plus corbin burns to the dodgers uh, as as something and and gavin lux always ends up going back the other way because he's from kenosha and apparently that, that just automatically means he has to go play for the brewers someday but realistically do you see the dodgers going out of their way to upgrade that spot? Or do you think they'll actually entrust Lux, at least to begin the season, to be the starter? Yeah, that burns Adamas trade. has been kind of like lurking for a year and a half at this point, it seems like. like it's, just, it's such a logical fit on paper, but obviously the asking prices have been sort of high, and obviously they haven't been able to come together on a trade there. But yeah, I feel like that they've been saying publicly for sure that, they, that uh, Lux is their shortstop. Uh, it's an interesting thing to sort of, picture though because obviously the left side of the infield uh max Muncie was really up and down defensively especially down at the end of the season was down um so that's me interesting thing on the left side if you really want gavin lux and max Muncie to be your left side defensively especially with lux coming off the injury um lux is someone obviously who has shown a little bit of value especially his last healthy season was a quality second baseman uh the bat was really there especially before he suffered a neck injury in september but yeah, I feel like if there's an opportunity to upgrade, like if that Adamus Burns trade really comes into fruition, I feel like the Dodgers would jump at it. But I don't know if there's anyone necessarily on the free agent market that you would sign and say is a clear upgrade over Lux at shortstop. So it would really have to be if the right package comes together for them to really move off Lux at shortstop. Yeah, I, I think that's a big part of the challenge right now. And I, I wonder if, if that's something that, you know, we'll see eventually develop within that system if there's a a player in the Dodgers organization that could be the shortstop of the future and it ends up being more of a stopgap via trade as opposed to a a long-term solution that they're able to acquire uh, on that front as far as the bullpen goes I look at it on paper I know they're always able to find bargain bin relievers and, and turn those guys into quality options do you see 
more upgrades coming in that corner of the roster as well? They've been tied to Josh Hader, but like I, I don't fully see it just because of, like, they haven't usually spent aggressively when it comes to their bullpen, with the exception being Kenley Jansen, who's they were just re-signing him. Uh, yeah, so like I feel like they're in a position where they've brought a lot of guys back from last year's bullpen, and they're bringing uh, Blake Trinan and JP Fireisen back from injury. Uh, they they actually brought back uh, Daniel Hudson on a minor league deal, and he's a guy who has had a lot of success with the Dodgers. Obviously, he just hasn't been out on the field all that often uh, with some of the knee issues the last couple of years. So I feel like they're in a position where depth-wise they feel pretty good, especially some young guys like Kyle Hurt would make some sense, especially down the stretch. Uh, some of the other guys like you might see be up and down guys could be sort of converted to bullpen roles. Guys like Michael Grove, for example, would make a lot of sense in a bullpen role. So I feel like depth-wise they're really in a good spot. But obviously, if you can get Hader at a good price, then all of a sudden your bullpen obviously gets, started, uh, gets stronger because you can bump guys down a roll. Evan Phillips can be your fireman. Same thing with Bruce Argratterall. Uh, so the guys aren't necessarily overextended too much. But I feel like they're, as of right now, like they feel like they're in a pretty good spot with their bullpen. What I think is also pretty interesting about the Dodgers right now is the, the way they're referring to this sort of decade of dominance as a failure. I mean, the one World Series title to show for it I do think we've had this sort of shift in pretty much every sport. It used to be that college football was like this, where it was championship or bust for the top programs. And now it seems like that's permeating every other sport, where being great in the regular season and being in the postseason every year and being legitimately talented enough to win the World Series in any given year, that doesn't seem to be enough. But how much of it is actually a, a problem with either the roster, Dave Roberts, whatever it is? You could, you could take the, the excuses that Dodgers Twitter will throw at you, or you could take the lines you're given from the front office. Like, do you believe this is a, a real thing within the organization? Do they actually believe they're failing, or is this just the result of expanded playoffs and the fact that playoff tournament baseball is different than the regular season? It's just the chaos of numbers, isn't it? Yeah, I feel like that's there's some of that in there. I feel like do, the Dodgers are in danger of being like looped in with the '90s Braves in a sense, where like they just kept being in there, but they never quite really won outside of the one time. And it's some that's actually something I brought up to Dave Roberts a couple of years ago, just sort of talking about like what the next decade of Dodger baseball is going to look like. And he actually like didn't shy away from the '90s Braves comparisons. Like, yeah, the, what the Braves did was really difficult. Uh, it was really impressive what they were able to do. Obviously, they want to win more titles. They obviously want to win the World Series. And if you look at like the first half of this decade-long run, or like this first five or so years of Andrew Freeman's tenure specifically, they made it to the World Series three different times. They only won the one World Series. They haven't been able to get back to the World Series in a while. I think that's why you're starting to see this sort of crop back up again, especially with how they've played in the first round in the last couple of years, losing the way they did. I mean, they just haven't played well in the first round. Like they, they really haven't. Last year, especially. Obviously, uh, their pitching staff was in tatters by the end of the season, but the offense was as much of a story as anything because they just really couldn't get anything going. Same thing in 2022. So uh, they have to figure out a way to perform better in October, layoff or not, expanded playoffs or not. And I think that's part of what what sort of helped push for this aggressive offseason. I feel like they were always going to be wanting to push for Shohei Otani. I feel like Shohei Otani's contract sort of gave them the leeway to keep pushing. But I feel like there is a part of it where it's just like, all right, like we, they've won 211 games the last couple of years, and they have not, they've won one playoff game during that stretch. Like they have to like have some actual results in October, and 
at a certain point, like the guys have to play better, but you can just keep ramming in talented players in there until one of them actually starts performing in October. And I think that's the biggest thing they're trying to do this October is just foolproof as much of the roster as possible and just hope that things keep lining up. You just think about the the turnover we've seen in successful front offices because of the lack of of titles. Dave Dombrowski, like you'd forget that the Red Sox won a title not that far in front of his actual departure from that organization a few years ago. The Astros' turmoil in the front office is different, different causes, different issues, so not quite the same. But I, I don't know. I, I just find, and obviously, the pressure cooker of the Bronx, like. The conversations around the Yankees are just ridiculous. I realize that historically, more World Series titles than any organization. Expectations there are higher than they are probably anywhere outside of Los Angeles right now. I don't know. Championship or bust is just a dangerous place to be. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew Neck T-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code The Athletic, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Part of it for me, too, is like when you look at the NL West, I don't know if there is a credible threat to the Dodgers as far as division titles go. What the Giants did a couple seasons ago, to me, is like an all-time amazing variance performance. They took a roster that was probably a slightly better than 500 group of players and won the NL West, won over 100 games while doing it. 
when you look at the way these teams are built right now, you know, the Padres having to cut back on spending, having just traded Juan Soto this winter, the Giants trying to get better, but still really a couple notches below the Dodgers in terms of overall talent. The Diamondbacks being a team that had a negative run differential, even though they made that great World Series run in 2023. Is there a credible threat to this team within the division? I mean, as far as like annually winning the division, I'm not sure. But in terms of like a one year being able to like sort of figure things out, I feel like the Diamondbacks have sort of given that like blueprint there. They have enough established young talent that you would think get, would get a little bit better. You would think that Corbin Carroll would continue to get better. Brandon Fott kind of showed what he could be in October. Obviously, you have some contract discussions coming up for Zach Gallon and Merrill Kelly, but I kind of like what they've done this offseason. I think Eduardo Rodriguez made a lot of sense for them. Uh, bringing back Loris Goriel Jr. made a lot of sense for them. I think the Dimebacks uh, are in a position to at least uh, be within a couple strings of variance uh, from having a kind of run like they did last year. Uh, and the Giants, I think, obviously, they, their resources are going to keep them in the conversation, even though they haven't really been able to turn those into actual players. I think that that'll still continue to loom, at least, as a possibility. But yeah, and then obviously we'll see what happens with the Padres. They still have obviously have the top end talent locked in. So like there are scenarios where like those guys could really kind of fire all on all cylinders in the same year. But obviously we haven't seen that yet. So it's so hard to do year in and year out, which is what has made what the Dodgers have done pretty impressive, even though the October results obviously haven't been there. Yeah, I think the Padres, the big concern I would have for them is that they've got a few really important players dealing with uh, injuries. You, you look at the way Joe Musgrove and Yu Darvish were hurt at the end of the season, Manny Machado having surgery. It's like they need everybody on their roster to be healthier than expected if they're going to hit their higher-end outcome as a result of having to move away from uh, Juan Soto via trade. It's just so disappointing, right? Just given how aggressive they were. It was so fun when they were going all in. I really liked the, the way that team was, was built. But if they're done tearing it down and they get good health, I think they can hang around. They can bounce partway back expectations-wise. The keys, of course, are going to be some of the players they got back in that Soto trade. I feel like there's a lot riding on Michael King for the Padres, which is weird for, for a guy that many people outside of you know, Yankees fans and fantasy players, like that's a guy that many people aren't familiar with at all. And he was sort of a key piece to getting that Soto deal done. And given their need for innings, especially, he's going to be really important as kind of the number three starter in that Padres rotation. Yeah, especially considering he's a guy who wasn't even starting until halfway through last season. Like, that's the craziest thing of all of it. Obviously, like, we've seen guys convert from relieving to starting and have some success. Like, the Rays obviously did it with the guys last year as well. But, mm -hmm. like, it's it's interesting, always, especially seeing the year two of that. Like, all right, well, now you have to face these teams multiple times in a year you have to sort of deal with uh the, the the physical wall that you have to hit at certain points when you reach uh new markers on innings totals and stuff like that it'll be interesting but i think the padres have enough of like the star level players to at least keep themselves in the mix it, well like you mentioned it's a lot of it's betting on health uh a lot of it's betting on fernando tatis jr being the guy he was uh before his suspension before his injuries uh so like yeah it's a lot of betting on the best outcomes for certain guys, but like obviously when you have star level players under contract, that's some of the variance you're buying into, uh, hoping that you can sort of line up your way. Yeah, I think if, if you had to choose today 
behind the Dodgers. I think everybody would choose the Dodgers to win the NL West. And again, knowing they're not done, they're going to be even better. Who finishes second? Are you taking the Diamondbacks right now if you're projecting based on what we've seen so far? Yeah, I say the Diamondbacks just because I think they've gotten better. Uh, they've gotten better uh, this offseason. I don't know if you can say that necessarily for any of the other teams in the division. Maybe the Giants a little bit, but uh, still not tangibly better. We still have to see what Lee looks like uh, stateside. But yeah, I think the Diamondbacks like clearly got better so far this offseason. I think they still have position and some hopes like, all right, this is kind of the run, especially knowing that they have Corbin Carroll cost controlled going forward. Uh, that allows them to maybe be more creative with their payroll than they have been in years past. So thinking about games you've seen last season or two, who've been some of the most exciting players for you to watch? I, I think when I talk to the people who get to watch baseball nearly every day or every day as beat writers, sometimes it's, it's hard to impress a beat writer because you see so much. Who's worth the price of admission right now? Because you mentioned Corbin Carroll, and the first thing I thought is, that guy is one of the most exciting players in the game for me, but who else kind of fits into that bucket for you right now? I was going to say Corbin Carroll. I think it's not like his speed. Obviously you can put like measurements on it and all that sort of stuff. Like just seeing it on the field is still just crazy. Like even knowing like how fast he is, it, it doesn't process properly. Your math, like <laughs> watching a play play out doesn't sort of work out like, him going first to third on a play where it's like, oh, this should be a close play at third. Like, no, he's standing up at third uh, type of stuff like that. Like he is, he epitomizes, I think, what these rule changes are kind of shifting towards and he's a perfect player for it. Like the Dimebacks are well positioned in a lot of ways because he is a player that fits this modern game so well. So like he's someone who's really impressive. It's hard not to say that you, I wasn't wowed that by a uh, Ronald Acuna Jr. Like he was incredible last year. He is so much fun to watch. Uh, he always has been. I feel like he's one of those guys who just watching him, even for a weekend series, like he is, you can feel like his gravity on the field, even when he's not directly involved in a play. So I feel like those are the two guys that immediately come to mind. Yeah, I've heard some good stuff, too, about Carroll from a leadership perspective, already emerging as a guy in the clubhouse, even though he just turned 23 back in August, that people rally around. And that's huge to have that in your young superstar. Not every young superstar comes in and kind of has that presence in the clubhouse right away. But you're right about the speed. There's just stuff you see Corbin Carroll do, and you have to do a double take after it happens. Like a first to third on a ball that's kind of in shallow right. You're like, oh, okay. Yeah, this is, this is a gamble. This is a close play. No. You're absolutely right. He's just unbelievably fast and generates so much more power than you'd think, too. When you look at him, the power kind of reminds me of like Ryan Braun, just in terms of when you looked at Braun, you didn't expect the kind of power that he produced either. But it's strength, it's bat speed, it's everything. It's just an incredible package of tools that Corbin Carroll brings to the table. And I think one of my kind of favorite things as a neutral observer seeing the Diamondbacks in the World Series was that a lot of people who didn't get to watch him play during the regular season actually have to watch it happen in October. But I think I'm with you as far as the Diamondbacks being the, the second best team uh, in this division, at least as things stand right now. I'd, I'd love to see the Giants go out and, and end up getting a big upgrade in that rotation. I think if you had a one-two punch alongside Logan Webb, that would go a long way. They're probably hoping Kyle Harrison can be that sort of player. The other part of the Giants roster that I still don't know about, maybe this is from hosting the show with Keith Law a lot, is Marco Luciano, is he going to be a good shortstop or a good enough defensive shortstop? Is the bat going to be an impact bat right away? I think there's a lot riding on Harrison and Luciano if the Giants are going to exceed 
expectations here uh, in 2024. And of course, uh, we'll see if they get more free agents into the fold here in the next couple of months. Now, being a West Coast guy, I got to ask you, this story was ridiculous. People probably saw this going around. So last Tuesday in Idaho, the state opened its first In-N-Out Burger. And people were waiting in line up to eight hours, according to the Idaho statesman. How long would you wait in line for In-N-Out Burger? Like, what's your what's your threshold for that? Uh, I feel like there might be not be like worse like located intersection in America than like where the In-N-Out is on Bell Road, right next to where the uh, Padres and Mariners spring training facility is. Because there's only one way in, even mm-hmm. though it's like a whole shopping center. But there's only one way in. It's compacted into a tiny little corner. There's always a line. It's always brutal. I've sat in that and that tested my patience. Like I love In-N-Out as much as anyone, but I feel like that's my limit. I feel like if I sort of like that corner, as irritating as it is, that's my limit. Uh, I feel like eight hours is, I don't know if that's worth it. Uh, as much as I love In-N-Out, I don't know if that's worth it. I'm at like 30 minutes, I think. If I look at a line and there's maybe eight to 10 cars in it, I might get in that line. If it's longer than that, I'm not getting in there at all. I mean, the, the lines were ridiculous. And the lines, there were people standing outside too. So it was a couple hours that you wanted to go inside. It was up to eight if you were in the drive through line. And there were signs warning you. And people sat in it anyway. Uh, good news if you're in Idaho, I guess a couple more locations opening up soon. Is there any food that you've ever had traveling, covering teams, or even just on vacation that you would actually wait eight hours for? Uh, eight, eight hours is just a lot of patience. <laughs> forever. Uh, I don't really have. Like I, I've waited in some really good lines for like like Casey Barbecue or like even Hurtado's Barbecue in Arlington. Like a lot of really good eating on the road, but eight hours is just a lot. Like you can have a whole meal while waiting in line and still be hungry again by the time your turn comes up. Yeah, yeah. The longest I've ever waited for food, I think, is Little Miss Barbecue in Phoenix. Great and spot. it was back before they opened up another location. The second location is a little bit less crowded. And I think I went on a Sunday, so it wasn't, wasn't bad. It was like 15 or 20 minutes to get food. Not a problem. The first time I went to Little Miss Barbecue, it was over an hour. And that was the longest I've waited. And it was good enough to justify the wait, at least the first time. So I think my limit is about an hour for even the very best foods I've ever had. But eight hours for In-N-Out Burger, man, that just seemed absolutely ridiculous. What's your order in an out burger, by the way? Because I, I get to go like once a year at most. And I don't know about the secret menu or anything like that. So I'm, I'm pretty basic. I'm like animal styles as much as I know about how to modify my burger. What should I be doing when I go to in and out burger? I'm pretty standard. I just do the classic double, double with onion and with, uh, with some animal style fries. But like going back to Lumas barbecue, I just have like a random like waiting story for Lumas barbecue was I was an intern in college. And the guy I was interning for was like, all right, like it, it was the end of the semester. I was like, all right, like let's go get lunch at Little Miss Barbecue. But like before we go there, I want to meet with you and talk with you. Uh, can you meet with me at 10? And the place closed. I opened at 11. It's like we can just wait at 10. I get there. I get there early. He shows up a half hour late. He's like, oh, yeah, I just wanted you to hold my place in line while we're waiting for this food. And it, was, oh, no. it was hilarious. It, wor- it worked out great. But like, yeah, I feel like the, the line's for real at Little Miss Barbecue. Worth it, though. I, I will yes. say worth it. Uh, one of the better barbecue places I've had. I haven't had uh, like Franklin barbecue in Austin. It's, got, it's on my to-do list. Work travel never brings me to Austin. 
I got to I got to get into college baseball coverage or something yeah. to get down there and, and get that one. That one's been on my list for a long time. Uh, we are going to go on our way out the door. A reminder, you can give the gift of The Athletic a one-year subscription for a friend, $19.99 for one year. Theathletic.com slash baseball show will get you that offer. That'll get you all the great writing that Fabian does about the Dodgers, all the other great coverage we have on the site. It's perfect for the procrastinating sports fan that needs to find something nice to give someone this holiday season. Fabian, thanks again for joining me. Have a great holiday season and look forward to catching up with you again soon. Of course. Thanks for having me anytime. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. It's our final episode in the feed for 2023. We hope everyone has a great, happy holiday season and a happy new year as well. We'll be back here in two weeks. Mm-hmm.